You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for joining us. This week, we are transported back in time to late last year at RA's New York office, where staff writers Naishka Chandran and Kiana Mickles hosted a live recording of the exchange as a part of our Full Circle series, celebrating women in electronic music. Their guest was none other than DJ, producer and organiser, Jada Lorraine. One of my homegirls brought me to Soul in the Horn. This was a bit before I started DJing, but I just remember feeling so wowed by the entire experience, the environment, the music, Natasha Diggs. If anybody's familiar, you know the energy that Natasha Diggs brings to a room, the people like the dancing, it was just like nothing that I had ever experienced before. And I fell in love and it was a moment that really resonated with me. Um, But at the time, that type of gig wasn't available to someone like myself. So um, yeah, I, I think that the scene and nightlife as a whole in New York City has evolved a lot from 2015 to now as well as her incredible DJ sets and impeccable curation as a booker at renowned New York nightclub nowadays, Jada Lorraine is well known for her efforts to catalyze social progress through music with her initiative Skillshare and the virtual producer camp she organizes with Sam Law and Five Boy. We'll hear of all these wonderful things and more as Jada's chat with Naishka and Kiana touches on an encounter with Q-Tip that inspired Jada to get back into music, how the bookings process operates at nowadays, and the importance of pouring in to your community. I hope that you have a wonderful listen to Jada Lorraine on RA's Exchange. Hi, my name is Kiana Mickles, Resident Advisors, New York staff writer. Welcome to another episode of the RA Exchange. Right now I'm sitting in RA's Greenpoint office for Full Circle, our live event series celebrating women in music. And I'm here with the New York-based DJ and producer, Jada Lorraine, and my colleague, Naishka, who has been visiting us in the office for the past few months. So how's your time been in New York, Naishka? You know, it's it's a real privilege to come hang out in New York. I am based in Toronto at the moment, and I feel like a lot of cities around the world, you know, they had a really slow recovery to nightlife, but I've had the privilege of being here throughout summer and fall, and I feel like New York parties, they started hot and heavy, like right out of the gate. There's so much vibrancy here. Um, the city has like a history of a lot of well-curated events, but there's something combined with like pandemic era, lust for the dance, combined with like just like the modesty of the great talent that's out here and that formula it really it really shows in the atmosphere of all these parties you know i've been really lucky to check out so many great sessions like club nightclub 718 sessions um, mr sunday's parties at nowadays and everywhere i go i'm just i'm just really amazed and i think everyone in the world wants to be in new york right now and so i feel super lucky to be here um there's been a lot of great local acts that I've been super impressed by. Um, people like Fote, people like Terribio, of course Jada, who we're really lucky to have here in the office today. What's up, Jada? How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm a little nervous, but I'm happy to be here, honored to be amongst you two ladies. So thank you for having me. All right. We're going to get started, but let's uh, let's get, get some background info about Jada first. Kiana, you want to fill us in? So for those of you who don't know Jada... Um, She is a DJ and producer um, whose sound draws from house music, East Coast Club, hip hop, and so much more. A very versatile palette that really encapsulates the no holds barred energy of New York dance music right now. 
She's also the founder of two community-focused projects, the first being Skillshare, a series of DJ and production workshops prioritizing women, non-binary people, and queer people of color, and working with fellow DJs, Five Boy and Same Law. She also heads the virtual producer camp in session which is a platform which similarly centers artists of marginalized identities. And Jada's latest contribution to the New York nightlife community has seen her join the Nowadays booking team, where she currently leads the Ridgewood Club's Friday programming. So let's get right into it. We have so much to talk about, but maybe Jada, you can tell us first, you know, how you got started in this industry what your experience was like breaking out as a DJ, as a promoter, and you know how easy or how hard it was for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my journey started in 2015. I was actually working a corporate job as an executive assistant. I've always had a love for music. I grew up in a musical family. Um, my mother's from Newark, my father's from Brooklyn. I listened to a lot of, you know, funk, soul, hip hop, R&B growing up. Um, but yeah, I always had this emphasis on getting a good job, going to a good school and getting a good job in my household growing up. Um, so I went to college, I studied marketing. Um, I got a job as an executive assistant. And I was doing internships on the side. Music kind of was my hobby around that time. Um, yeah, I was working as the music director for an entertainment blog that was run by all women, had all women editors. So I was doing interviews and um, helping to produce events and hosting and, and things of that nature. And you know, being in that environment, it really inspired me to want to get back into music on the creative end of things, because I had played instruments um, growing up, but it was never something that I considered to be a career. Um, so yeah, I learned how to DJ in 2015. Um, I got a lesson from a friend of a friend who taught me how to play on turntables. And that first lesson was extremely daunting, um, but extremely exhilarating at the same time. And I, I, I really, I really gravitated towards just like the art of DJing in that one lesson. And I just had this hunger to learn more about it. Um, and like I said, music has always been a great passion of mine. Um, but DJing and, and, you know, playing with vinyl records, something about it just drew me in. And um, I, the, the rest was history. I, I took some classes at Scratch Academy. Um, and I remember throwing my first party at a bar in New York City. It was like a sports bar. Um, and... You know, my friend got me the gig there, and I played the whole night by myself on my my little controller, and um, yeah, from there I kind of just immersed myself in the scene in New York City. Um, there weren't, there were some women DJs around that time, not nearly as many as there are now, but yeah, that was kind of my start with DJing. And that was almost seven years ago now, so. Can you give us a picture of what nightlife was like back then? Like, what kind of venues you were playing? Because um, I think we've been um, talking a lot about how nightlife is really flourishing right now. And it definitely did not look like this <laughs> um, seven years ago. Um, and... I think that has a lot to do with, you know, the cabaret law being repealed in 2017. So can you just like give us a picture of what breaking into the scene then felt like then? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, nightlife in New York City has come a long way, at least from my perspective. I was playing a lot of, like I said, bars and lounges and, and clubs in New York City, smaller scale clubs. Um, 
and I was playing a lot of hip-hop and top 40 and that kind of thing um, because those were the type of gigs that were available to me at that time. Um, I think I maybe had like one gig in Brooklyn at, at Casablanca Cocktail Lounge. Not sure if anybody knows about Casablanca. It closed in the pandemic, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's a, a pretty was a pretty well known spot in Bedsty around that time. And I just remember thinking, because I was living in in Harlem at the time, and I just remember thinking, wow, this is so far out of the way. Like, <laughs> um. But yeah, I was doing a lot of those types of gigs. Um, There were parties that were more centered around dance music, um, but they just felt a little bit, um, I guess, inaccessible to me as a budding DJ at the time. And I remember uh, one of my homegirls brought me to Soul in the Horn, which at the time was at Sabrosa, in downtown Manhattan on, I believe, 12th Street in meatpacking. And I just, this was a bit before I I started DJing, but I just remember feeling so wowed by the entire experience, the environment, the music, Natasha Diggs. If anybody's familiar, you know the energy that Natasha Diggs brings to a room. Um, The people, like the dancing, it was just like, nothing that I had ever experienced before um and I fell in love and you know it was a moment that really resonated with me um but at the time that type of thing wasn't or that type of gig wasn't available to someone like myself so um yeah I I think that the scene and nightlife as a whole in New York City has evolved a lot from 2015 to now, for sure. We definitely want to touch on, you know, the differences between um, the scene then and now, and particularly the factors that have caused it to change. But I want to touch on your backstory first for a little bit. Um, you know, you were, you were born and raised in New York, which is rare for someone living in New York at the moment. Can you tell us about you know, the neighborhood you grew up in and what kind of what kind of relationship you had with your community at that time? Yeah, for sure. I was actually born in New Jersey, um, in Summit, New Jersey. My mother's from Newark, like I said, um, and my father's from Brooklyn. I lived in Jersey for the first year or so of my life. And then we moved to Putnam County, which is about an hour north of the city. Um, that's where my father got employment so that's where we moved to and um I grew up in a a predominantly white suburban town um and so you know being in that environment um over time throughout you know middle and high school um cultivating community is something that has always been really important to me because it's not something that I always felt that I had um growing up in that environment um so yeah I guess that sentiment kind of followed me through into moving back to the city for college and you know kind of staying here um beyond that what school did you go to um were you DJing at all um in school were you like involved in college radio no you know it's funny I actually went to school for fashion I wanted to be (laughs) I wanted to be a fashion designer um and you know when I was in high school I was in the orchestra I played the the bass actually um but these types of crafts like music and fashion um in the household that I grew up in, it, was, it wasn't encouraged as something that I could take seriously and I could turn into a career and, and make money off of and sustain. Um, so I went to school for fashion business because um, it was the closest thing that was to something that was near to my heart but that would also be able to sustain me. Um, And being in college studying fashion, it was truly a nightmare, honestly. 
um, you know, being in that environment and experiencing the just the tension and the stress it kind of took the fun out of it for me you know fashion is something that I always felt really excited about as uh, a young person on the outside of the industry but being inside of the industry it kind of took all the fun away from it for me and that's when I started interning at the blog and I became the music director um because it, it it just felt it felt um, like an escape from, you know, working in an industry that just sucked all of the fun out of the thing that I love so much, you know, so. Can you um, tell us more about um, working um, at at the blog? Um, like, what, what kind of things were you doing over there? Yeah, for sure. Um, so as a music director of the blog, I was conducting interviews with different artists. Um, I was managing all of the content for the blog, so all of the different music-related stories that we would post on the blog kind of came through me. And um, covering, you know, different concerts and events. And we would also do, we would also host club nights, different club nights um, throughout the city. So I was doing a little bit of everything. And through the work that I was doing with the blog um, and just being able to experience uh, nightlife in a different way is kind of the beginning of my desire to get back into music on the creative end of things. Um, I remember one night we were hosting a party and Q-Tip was DJing and I, I'm a huge fan of Q-Tip for, you know, obviously his music and his work with Tribe Called Quest. Um, but being able to see him DJ and experience that was just like a really, and also, also getting to meet him um, was a pivotal moment for me in terms of, you know, wanting to get back into music on the creative side of things. And um, I was spending a lot of time with a, a different um, DJs and producers in the scene and um, I remember just hanging out with this producer that I really admire and him telling me, you know, you have really great taste in music. You should be a DJ. And that's when he connected me with one of his friends that he toured with for years and years. And I got my first vinyl lesson. So, yeah. So we've, we've heard a bit about, you know, how being a music director at this job really pushed you into, into your, the career that you have now. But Maybe you can tell us a bit about when you were a kid and what you thought of dance music was at the time. You know, I personally, I know a lot of people um, in Singapore, their first introduction to dance music was like pop groups like the Venga Boys. You know, everyone kind of has a different way of exploring club music. What were some of your first kind of forays into, into the high BPM world? You know, um, I, I wasn't really exposed to dance music as much until I got to college. When I was growing up, I was listening to a lot of what my mother was listening to, which was like a lot of funk, soul, classic soul, um, some R&B, hip hop. So like Slave, D-Train, um, Sade, Anita Baker, that kind of thing um, is what I was listening to growing up. And then being from New York, I was also listening to like the locks and G unit and that kind of thing, you know, like early 2000s stuff um, is what we were listening to if you grew up in New York. Um, and then I think dance music, where I grew up and the environment that I grew up in, it, it just wasn't prevalent, you know. I was exposed to like things like Crystal Waters and CeCe Peniston, like to a, a, a limited degree. Um, but I think my first um, real experiences with dance music came when I was in college and I was able to, to go out to clubs and experience and moments like going to Soul in the Horn um, is when I really broke into dance music. And I just felt like I had that aha moment. Like it was that thing that I was missing for my life, you know, like that energy. Um, was just incomparable and, and like nothing that I had really ever 
experienced or been exposed to prior. And I think that um, kind of made me plunge into it at first. It, it just impacted me so deeply. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that um, right now I'm looking at the dance music scene and I see um, kind of like a black house music renaissance. Um, there are artists like yourself, um, Muscle Cars and Duvoy. Um, these are all artists that you guys all actually happen to be from New York <laughs> or neighboring New York. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I think it's interesting to think about, you know, we're coming out of, we're still in the pandemic, but we're entering a new era of the pandemic, you know, this post-vaccination era. Um, and it seems like everyone I speak to is interested in hearing more soulful, um, you know, gentler sounds. Um, and um, yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you feel like, um, yeah, this, the scene has shifted um, since the onset of the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, since the pandemic, the scene has kind of cultivated this more um, community-driven mentality. Um, there's a lot more opportunities for artists and DJs like myself, like Muscle Cars, like Devoy, really just um, artists of color that weren't necessarily getting the platforms um, that they are now prior to the pandemic. Um, and I think there's just been an emphasis on kind of giving that platform and that equity back to the artists that are preserving that legacy of blackness in music and specifically within dance music, um, which has been honestly really exciting. Um, I know we spoke a bit about this prior to the interview, but um, I think one of the biggest catalysts in New York in terms of uh, restoring, you know, the the origins of dance music and specifically with blackness in dance music um, has to do with Half Moon, um, the Black-owned grassroots radio station that was formed in 2018. And I think that's when a lot of us kind of came together. Um, myself, DJs like Cosmo, Devoy, Mo Moretti, Ace Mo, um, Criss Cross, you name it. A lot of us came together. DJs um, came together in that moment. And um, I think that was the start of a new era almost um, in New York. And I think that, you know, since the pandemic, um, that sentiment has kind of just been amplified tenfold and kind of kicked down the doors for a lot of other artists um, to come in and do their thing and get a piece of that pie. And um, it's been really beautiful to see, you know? You know, that's actually something I noticed when I got here, being an outsider, you know, um, going to parties. A lot of locals have told me that they've noticed kind of fresh faces behind the decks, in the crowds. I mean, the crowds is a whole different story, right? You have people who might not have been into dance music coming into these underground venues, spending more time, but more importantly, like the rise of new collectives and new parties. Mm -hmm. So when an outsider like me looks into that, do you think... I would say it seems like there are more opportunities for maybe younger talents to break into this industry. Do you think that's the case? Or is it more that, you know, these people were here all along, but they weren't given the right opportunity to play out? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think the excitement around these uh, black music makers getting the opportunity to shine, and not just black music makers but latinx and asian and all of these marginalized voices um i think that we've been here and i think the fact that you know we're now getting more of a platform to do what we do is inspiring um a new generation as well and um 
I think that that's a big, it's a big thing where, especially for myself, you know, I didn't come in contact with dance music until college, like I said, and there's so much rich history when it comes to dance music that happened within my lifetime, you know, this, the origins of house and techno um, were forming, you know, when I was a small child, it's not that far away. So, um, I think that there's just been kind of like this renaissance of people reconnecting with the music and kind of like understanding the origins of this music and being excited about the origins of this music because this music has kind of, um, been whitewashed quite frankly over the past 20, 30 years. And a lot of us, um, myself and, you know, I'm, I'm in touch with, um, the music now, but, you know, there's plenty of people, uh, people of color, black people who don't go out and dance to house music or techno because they think it's white music and they don't know the history of this music. Um, so I think that's why it's especially important to kind of, um, highlight and platform artists now that are kind of reconnecting with the origins of this music and kind of wanting to share that with the world but also within our own community and and kind of restore that that sense of belonging in dance music because you know it's, it's truly a gift and it was born out of this um this struggle that you know, all uh, people of color, specifically black people, share, like, this uh, wanting to feel a sense of belonging, wanting to feel a sense of togetherness, and and wanting to um, come together and resist, and um, I think it's really beautiful that there's kind of been this resurgence within New York City nightlife, um, and that there's this excitement about it again, and, um, I've heard from people in, you know, in the nightlife community that have been in the nightlife community for the past 10, 15, 20 years that this time right now is the most exciting time in nightlife since, you know, the 90s or early 2000s. So it's really exciting to be a part of that and to be in a position to kind of, you know, bring my my brothers and sisters along with me. So, yeah. I mean, as you said, it is, it is, feels like a true renaissance, but, you know, can it last, right? When we look ahead, like, to the future, we're in this kind of pandemic era momentum. People are out here to support. They're excited about, you know, um, supporting minority artists. They're excited about um, building a more inclusive scene. But, like, what does it take for this momentum to continue? Like, is it for, is it on the artists to keep, you know, doing their thing and hustling for gigs? Is it, or does it depend more on, like, the infrastructure the festivals, the clubs, the booking agencies to, you know, prioritize people who never really got their fair share in the spotlight before. It's probably both, but it would be great to hear where you think kind of the responsibility lies. Yeah, of course. Um, I think inevitably this excitement will continue amongst the POC and the nightlife community. Um, but I do think that in order for this to be sustainable and to kind of redistribute that equity, it is on the venues and it is on the festivals and it is on the promoters to kind of do some honest reflection and to ask themselves, you know, do we want to make nightlife more equitable for POC or are we just doing this for the optics to look good for the time being because being inclusive is trendy right now, you know? And that's that's hard work if we're being honest because it will take a lot of sacrifice and it will take a lot of um, just, like I said, honest reflection and um, just taking inventory of the way things that have been done for the past 10, 20, 30 or so years. And um, kind of just 
dismantling that and decolonizing the way that nightlife has continued all of this time. Um, so I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. Yeah, I think that um, leads me to um, my next question, which is talking a little bit about um, your role at Nowadays. Um, as we talked a little bit about, um, yeah, your position there um, before the interview. Um, and it's like a really big deal. <laughs> um, you know, um, uh, we were talking about um, how we're lucky here to have um, a variety of dance clubs in New York um, that's not very common in the U.S. Um, and, you know, to have venues also that are still here after the pandemic um, and to see you booking on Fridays um, at like one of the biggest uh, <laughs> dance clubs, uh, dance music clubs in New York um, is pretty inspiring. So um, yeah, could you talk a little bit about your role there and um, yeah, how you're settling into it? Yeah, sure. So like you mentioned, I've joined the booking team at Nowadays. I'm uh, spearheading Friday nights. So the way we do booking is Fridays lean a bit more towards house and disco. Um, and then Saturdays are leaning a bit more towards techno and, you know, harder genres of music. Um it's a pretty collaborative process across the board. Um, so there's DJ Voices who handles Saturdays um, and the rest of the booking team. And we kind of bring things to the table and um, share our ideas. And in terms of um, finalizing lineups and things like that, it's a pretty collaborative process. But yes, Friday is kind of my wheelhouse in terms of um, the booking that I do at Nowadays. And um, I've been there for about five months now. I started at the beginning of July, July 7th, 7-7, um, if you're into numbers like me. And um, yeah, it's been great. It's been really interesting um, to kind of see the nightlife scene through the lens of a, a booker, somebody that works at a nightclub versus just as a DJ, um, which has been my role for the past uh, six or so years prior to this moment. But it's also been really nice and really rewarding to be able to join a team at a club um, with the stature that nowadays has in the nightlife community in New York and to kind of bring my passion for um, creating more opportunities and space and equity for people of color um, in the nightlife space. Um, so yeah, it's been um, challenging at times um informative all the time and um ultimately very rewarding to be able to um kind of use this role and this privilege to help people within my community and talent that i really care about and i really respect um so yeah we talked a bit earlier about you know where the responsibility lies in building the inclusive scene you're one of these people now like you have some power you're able to book um, people from your community for Friday nights at you know probably New York's best club. What does it? How does your role when it comes to bookings? How does it differ from you know when you plan your own parties? We talked about this before the interview, right? Like it's you don't have you might not have the same approach when it comes to booking people for a club night you do versus booking for nowadays. But you still want to you know make sure you're including people from your community and as well as from other minority communities. So. It's tough, right? Because we're all a bit biased. We all have, you know, our communities that we want to support. But then it's also thinking about um, people who are going to draw in the crowd, right? People who are going to fill up the club. So it's a hard one balancing that kind of commercial aspect with like the cultural focus you're going in. 
Do you struggle with that working at nowadays? Or is that something, you know, you're that's like in constant kind of evolution? Yeah, I think it's definitely in constant evolution. Um, as you said, there's a lot of different factors to consider when booking. Um, but ultimately, I think it's all about striking a balance, um, kind of making sure that the lineups are inclusive and they're exciting and they're fun and they're going to bring people out because ultimately, you know, the club has to make money. Um, I also like to make sure that, you know, we're, we're giving respect to legacy. So booking legacy artists and, um, giving the opportunity for locals to kind of share the decks with legacy artists wherever possible. Um, incorporating the intergenerational aspect because I think, you know, great parties have people of all ages and, and backgrounds. Um, and yeah, kind of taking all of those things into consideration. It's, it's, um, definitely something that I'm still settling into. Um, but it's really rewarding. And I think, you know, cultivating that balance only, makes the parties better you know um keeping the lineups interesting and and not obvious because we are competing with other nightclubs in new york um and you know some other nightclubs they don't they're not taking all of these things into consideration you know they just want to sell tickets and get people through the door and that doesn't always require um this type of thoughtful intention so I think ultimately that's what will set nowadays apart and I'm excited and honored and happy to be a part of a, a team that is really prioritizing all of those things. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, um, over the summer we saw um, a lot of like harm reduction workshops also happening there. Um, generally, I feel like um, nowadays does a good job of, you know, being very community focused um, in its programming. Um, so it's really great to have you there. Um, you also hosted your first Skillshare uh, workshop there. How, how, was, how did that go? It was great. Um, Skillshare is a workshop series that I started in, uh, I wanna say early 2019. I never actually intended for it to be a series. I just remember wanting to do something for Women's Month and give back um, because I always felt like coming up in this industry, there were just so many moments where I struggled and I was craving mentorship and I was craving resources and access and I just didn't have it. And I was working a full-time job and like breaking my back to learn how to do this thing that I felt so passionate about. And um, I always knew that once I got to a place where I felt more comfortable and more able to give back to other women of color, and not just women of color, but um, marginalized genders, period, queer people, non-binary trans people, um, I knew that I wanted to do what I could to um, give back and pay that forward. So... I want to say March 2019, I partnered with Power Plant, which is now um, home to Synth Library. Um, they have a residency there at the moment. But I partnered with them, and I did a workshop series. Um, we did, I want to say, 10 or 12 workshops in the month of March, which is was super ambitious, but we got it done, um, ranging from DJing, uh, we did a CDJ workshop, a, a vinyl workshop, um, different production workshops, an event production workshop, um, a whole bunch of different classes, a couple of talks, and um, brought out a couple hundred people for these workshops. Um, they were, I think they were sliding scale, and the proceeds went towards just paying the instructors for their time. And... Um, the instructors were just peers of mine, friends and peers of mine that I, I've made in the community that, you know, shared the sentiment of wanting to give back. And um, 
yeah, the response was just overwhelming and, and people were really excited about it and, and wanting more. Um, it was more than just like a learning opportunity. It was like a community building opportunity and a lot of people were able to come and, and learn from leaders in the community but also make friends and gain mentors and um yeah it was a a really rewarding experience for all parties involved and um people just continue to ask me like when's the next skillshare and so i'm like shit okay i guess this is something we're going to be doing ongoing now so it was um something that i had done pretty much monthly from there on out um I was doing the workshops at the Half Moon headquarters for a bit and uh when the pandemic started I worked with Nowadays a couple times to host the workshops on their virtually Nowadays platform I taught one and then I had Anna Roman lead um a production workshop as well and that was one of the first times that I I worked with Nowadays and then full circle moment I now since you know uh, working there I've been able to give Skillshare a home at nowadays which has been great so um, we did the first one last week there was about 100 people there crisscross led a record box and CDJ workshop and um, we followed it with an open deck session so people could come bring their USBs they get 15 minute slots and they were able to play on the nowadays system, which is like something I couldn't even have dreamed of doing when I first started out. So it's really nice to be able to give that back um, to DJs that are kind of just coming up now. So yeah, it, it's been great. Um, and it, it's really nice to kind of um, tie the work that I've been doing in the scene for the past couple years in with the work that I'm doing at Nowadays now. For those of our listeners who don't know, you also run in sessions. Um, maybe if you can walk us through the differences between Skillshare and in sessions and why you continue to do both. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So two friends of mine, Five Boy and Sam Law, are both people that I worked with um, for Skillshare. And I want to say May 2020, at the height of the pandemic, um, we all came together and Five Boy had this idea to create this digital production workshop, like this production camp, um, so that And I remember around that time, um, myself and just people in my community were kind of just like scrambling for things to do and ways to stay creative. And um, so when Five Boy approached me with this idea, I thought it was a a beautiful idea. Um, They asked me to come on board um, to do the programming. So we put together this week-long digital production camp where basically you would learn the ins and outs of audio production from like Ableton 101 to how to make a drum rack to mixing and mastering and how to, you know, how to get your music out there and how in publishing and licensing and like just every aspect of production. And it was really cool because I myself needed a lot of those workshops that we were putting on. Um, So it was great to be able to put on this workshop, participate in this workshop. And I think around that time, everyone was just like either really bored or just like wanting to utilize that time in the pandemic to... um, start a new a new craft or, or whatever the case may be um so yeah we launched it it was backed by splice and it spread like wildfire and by the time the camp kicked off we had like 300 people tuning in every day from like 30 different countries and it was just really incredible um 
And once again, community was a, a huge factor in the camp. Um, I made a lot of friends in other cities and other countries and just being able to learn and share with people from so many different backgrounds and just like getting to hear, you know, somebody from Spain and hear what type of tracks they were making from what they learned in the camp. It was just an, a really awesome experience. Um, and I think that the reason that um, I feel so strongly about both of these initiatives is that um, one, Skillshare is kind of centered around all things related to music. It's not just limited to DJing or to production. It's kind of just um, all facets of the music industry. And I think it's really important for people to talk about things and learn from each other. And, you know, we've had workshops where we're just talking about fees. Like, how much should I be charging for my DJ set? And, and how do I how do I devise a contract for a gig and, and things like that? It's really important to have those conversations amongst community, especially people of color, especially marginalized genders. Um, but also I think the in-person element of Skillshare is like super important too, just sharing space and being able to be hands-on. Um, for example, the last community Skillshare that we did um, with Crisscross people were able to watch her do the lesson on the CDJs, but then also hop on the CDJs after the fact. And I think that's like super important um, because many of us have watched seminars and, and, and YouTube videos and things online. And, and sometimes that's the end of it. It's like, oh, that looks cool. I'm excited about this, but how do I now apply that knowledge, you know? Um, but at the same time, in session is super important because you're cultivating a global community and building relationships with folks in other parts of the world, which is big if, if you want to be a DJ or you want to be a producer. You know, having those relationships is, like, super important. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's super important. Um, like, the workshop on DJ fees. Um, yeah, um, because uh, we were talking about this earlier, but... Um, it feels like New York is very competitive. Um, you know, we talk about community a lot, but like at the end of the day, it is an expensive city, um, increasingly so. Um, and sometimes it feels like the same people are like, you know, trying to fight for the same gigs. Um, so to be able to like be transparent and like, you know, inform younger um less established djs on like you know this is how much you should be getting paid is really cool yeah i guess i'm wondering um we've talked a lot about um mentorship and you know historically uh mentorship has been so essential in like um you know keeping music ecosystems healthy and you know uh yeah, encouraging younger talent um, and also ensuring that younger, less established talent um, don't burn out, um, that they, you know, can sustain their careers, like, once they get attention. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering how you feel, like, outside of your work, um, mentorship in um, New York is right now for marginalized artists. Um, if you see people doing similar work, um, if you think that more change needs to happen? I think we can do better, for sure. I think that, like I said, there's been um, more of a focus on community overall since the pandemic. But you're right, there is a lot of co competition in the nightlife space in New York. And I th think there could always be more mentorship, more conversations being had, more knowledge being shared, um, you know, more teaching and, and redistributing of, of wealth and opportunities. Um, I think that now that there are more of us, more POC in the nightlife space, it's, it's easier to kind of um, 
to share that knowledge and share those opportunities and i see a lot of collectives and friend groups coming together and 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 practicing together and teaching each other and that's really beautiful um i do think that there could always be more but i think it's important to remember that at the end of the day the scene is the scene you know and the scene is not necessarily your community. And that's why it's really important to find your community and to cultivate your own community. Um, because with all of the competition in, in New York City nightlife, I think it's easy to get caught up in this scene mentality of wanting certain folks acceptance or certain folks cosign or wanting proximity to certain names. And um, I think that for lack of a better word, it's all a load of bullshit, honestly. And I think when you find your people, you just stay close to them and, and pour into them and support them as much as possible and go to their gigs and, you know, share your tracks and, you know, share your, your decks if you have decks at home or however you can just be a resource to your friends and, and your friends will be a resource to you. And, you know, New York is a, it's a cutthroat city. So I think that type of support is essential to anyone's success in any industry, you know? Um, and I would love to see more of that, but I think it's really inspiring to see the friend groups that are coming together and the collectives that are coming together to support each other. And I always want to support the people in my immediate community and um, continue doing the work that I'm doing. I, I, I feel like I have a lot on my plate, but I do think it's super important to be there for each other, especially POC. Got to hold each other down because who else is going to hold us down, you know? Um, we could always do better, but I think that we're in a really good place right now in terms of support amongst you know poc in the new york city nightlife space just a follow-up question on that right so i mean we've talked a lot about identity politics and how um you know as you mentioned being inclusive is trendy now right and so when it comes to the when it comes to the players again the clubs um the festivals the booking agencies the talent people the talent scouts as they, you know, as they focus in on building support for POC, as they focus in on people who have haven't been paid their fair dues, a lot of, you know, a lot of people in minority communities are complaining about being tokenized, right? There's a lot of things like diversity hires, like quotas. Um, it could be gender based. It could be racial based. What's your take on all of this? Like, because tokenism is such a real, real sentiment right now um there's a lot of performative optics we talked about that earlier what do you think clubs and you know festivals can do to avoid that um i think i touched on this a bit earlier but it's really about that honest reflection do you want to create more equity for people of color or do you not want to it's pretty self-explanatory and it'll show on the lineups you know um, and I think it goes a little bit deeper than just kind of booking POC DJs. It's paying POC DJs what they deserve. It's paying POC DJs in the same range that you're paying other artists. Because we all know that there are white DJs out here that are getting paid $50,000 for the same length set that a POC DJ is getting maybe $5,000 at a festival or $1,000. And I think this goes back to the importance of talking to your community and, and sharing knowledge amongst your community um, because I think with capitalism, it's inevitable that these things are going to happen. And I think ultimately a lot of these entities, festivals, clubs, they don't give a shit if we're being honest. They really don't care. And it shows. Um, but a lot of it is just ignorance um it's not necessarily intentional it's just ignorance and i think that if these entities do want to change then they need to do the work 
plain and simple and reflect on the way they've been doing things and figure out ways to not do those things <laughs> anymore straight up um and i think that's hard work and i think that not many of these clubs especially white owned clubs are willing to do that because it's going to take time and it's going to take effort and it's going to take emotional labor and it's going to take energy and it's going to um take sacrifice quite frankly um and i think that we'll see that many of these festivals don't care to invest that to make things more inclusive but i think the ones that do will do that work and will understand that this is not a a project that's going to take one summer or one year it's something that's going to have to continue to be cultivated over time going forward um as long as night nightlife continues on and um i think we'll be able to see who is really about that making things equitable and who isn't we've touched on a lot of really critical points about this whole chat you know um one how nightlife in new york can kind of sustain this renaissance moment we're having you know we talked a lot about where the burden of responsibility lies to making sure that people are getting the right opportunities that the right people are getting the right opportunities um talked a lot about knowledge sharing you're you've been like a key player in a lot of these different topics where do you see yourself personally over the next um you know three to five years is it being more on like the back end side continuing to book more artists um i'm sure you miss djing a lot you probably don't have that much time for that now what is the ideal balance for you lie um yeah i mean ultimately number one i'm an artist i've devoted a lot of my time to creating space for others um but at this point in time i've slowed down a bunch on gigs to work on my music and to make the gigs that I am taking on more special now that I don't have to take five gigs a week like I was in the past just to pay bills um and really focusing on my wellness number one I think you know being an artist in New York City can be extremely exhausting and mentally and emotionally taxing Um, And it has been for me, to be quite frank. Um, So yeah, I think over the next few years, I'm going to be pouring back into myself, um, you know, prioritizing my wellness, prioritizing my rest, first and foremost. Um, But now that I've kind of created this infrastructure of support and hopefully uh, inspired others to kind of cultivate these infrastructures of support within their uh, respective communities. I definitely want to take more time to pour into myself, um, continue studying. I'm I'm always going to be a student of music and always wanting to keep digging and and keep getting a better understanding of the, the music and the I guess, ecosystems of music that came before me and really just start uh, focusing on myself as an artist, putting out music and making my DJ sets more special, maybe touring at some point down the line and, um, you know, really connecting with, um, reconnecting with that passion for music that brought me into this industry to begin with. Um, I think, you know, creating space for others will always be a priority to me because I think it's my duty with the privilege that I have to to have come as far as I have and and to uh, be in the spaces that I've been able to get to. Um, But also really just pouring into the art because at the end of the day, all of this is is about the music first and foremost. so yeah, I sh- I'll be putting out a project soon, very soon, my first project. I've been dropping little tracks here and there. 
Um, but I've really been focusing on putting out a project. And um, yeah, we'll see where it goes from there. All right. Well, that is a beautiful note to end on. Um, we're really excited for you. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for chatting with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you both so much. I was so nervous. Shout out to everybody with imposter syndrome. And um, thank, thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed this. And thank you to all my friends for being here. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Jada Lorraine, Naishka Chandran and Kiana Nichols. You can always check out our full archive of podcast episodes and be sure to subscribe to The Exchange on your favourite podcast platform to receive updates from us. Until next time, take care.